This podcast is sponsored by Grippable, the measurable, mobile and motivating device for weakened hand and arms. Bringing some serious fun to your rehab with Grippable. Visit www.grippable.co to buy or try now or email Grippable's friendly team at hello at grippable.co. The first, probably the first six to eight weeks of the pandemic, um, so we're looking at kind of March, April 2020, um, that was that was a bit like being hit by a truck. We're not just going through a cost of living crisis at the moment. You know, it seems we're very much coming into a crisis within the NHS as well. Uh, there are particular concerns about how the NHS is going to cope this winter. Um, the NHS has massive workforce challenges at the moment. Do you think enough is being done to help tackle young adult stroke? Um, in short, no. Welcome back to the SR Times podcast today. I'm joined by Austin Willett, CEO of the Different Strokes Charity. Austin, the first thing we like to do with our guests is just to get them know them a little bit better. So if you wouldn't mind giving us a, an introduction to yourself and different strokes. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. So, um, yeah, my name's Austin. I'm CEO of Different Strokes. Um, my background is um, I've always worked within the within the charity sector, managing a, a range of, of, of charities in different kinds of organisations, um, including a counselling organisation, including a furniture reuse project. Um, I also worked abroad for VSO for a while as well. Um, and then prior to different strokes, I worked for Headway, the brain injury charity. I was there for a couple of years. Um, and then I've been at different strokes for coming up to five years now. So before we get into different strokes, we'll talk a little bit more about yourself. So how did you come to be involved with different strokes after leaving Headway? Um, obviously, I... I... There's, there is some crossover between what Headway does and what Different Strokes does, um, because Headway supports all people with a brain injury, including people with traumatic brain injury. But, um, you know, a number of people they supported would be stroke survivors. Um, so there's some crossover with that. So I had obviously some knowledge of this area in the world of stroke. Um, beyond that, though, it, it, there, there wasn't much more to it than I was just looking around for a new opportunity, saw that the different strokes were um, looking to bring someone in to, to manage the organisation, felt that it would be a role that would be suitable for myself and was applied and fortunate enough to get the position. So I can imagine it's it's a very rewarding role from what you get out of it. What do you find most rewarding from being a CEO of a stroke charity? Um, I, I wouldn't say there's one single thing. I think it's a combination of um, a, a lot of different factors. Um, what I particularly like about this role, though, is firstly, we have a fantastic relationship with our beneficiaries of different strokes. Um, you know, the dialogue between us as the, the central charity and the individual people that we support is very strong, uh, be that through phone contacts, email contacts and a very active online support group that we have. And allied to the fact that 
half of our staff are strike survivors, half of our trustees are strike survivors, and the majority of our volunteers are strike survivors. Um, we very genuinely put our beneficiaries really at the heart of our decision-making process. So, you know, there feels like that there's really that closeness there be between the central charity and the people that we support. Um, second thing I like about it is the fact that there's an awful lot of variety to what I do. Um, it's probably a little bit of a cliche to say that no two days are the same, but but that's certainly largely true. Um, at times I'll be, you know, doing financial management, staff management, a lot of liaising with third parties, developing relationships and collaborations with corporate organisations or working within contacts within the NHS or, or, or other charities and so forth. So, um, and the opportunity to develop new projects as well. Um, I've been with the charity coming up for five years now. I would say that my job is probably no more than 50 or 60% now what it was when I started. The, the positions evolved, the charities evolved. We've taken on new projects such as teen and young adult befriending, online exercise, online networking, our work with ISDM, our work looking at issues regarding ethnicity and stroke. That um, These are all new things that have come on board um, you know, in the past few years. And a final factor as well, but is incredibly important, is I work with an absolutely fantastic team. Um, you know, I've got fantastic other staff that I work with, um, and it's really, really enjoyable um, to to work with my colleagues, with, with the other staff and the volunteers that we have at different strokes. So you mentioned that it's coming up for five years since you've been there, and obviously that will have included the, the COVID pandemic. How did you find managing the charity during what was a tough time for everyone how did how did you adapt um i think the first probably the first six to eight weeks of the pandemic um so we're looking at kind of march april 2020 um that was that was a bit like being hit by a truck um but then that's probably the case for the vast majority of people who are running organisations, whatever sector that was in. Um, it was incredibly stressful. Um, it was what we were having to do was simultaneously uh, make sure that our beneficiaries were getting the support that they need, coming up with new business plans, looking at new ways that we could offer support to beneficiaries, looking at our finances, knowing that parts of our finances, particularly our events fundraising, was going to take a massive hit. And looking to do um, a, a, a pretty fundamental overhaul of the, of the way that we went about most things um, with a massively reduced staff team, because at the time we had nine staff um, and five of them were furloughed in order to save costs. Um, so it was myself and three part-time staff. Um, so it was a classic case of having to do a lot more with less. Um, having said that, probably after a couple of months, we we reached a position where we, we got fairly on an even keel. Um, we were happy with what we'd been able to introduce to people. You know, our beneficiaries were very responsive to that and appreciative of what we'd been able to do. 
Um, and from there, things things got a little easier. So I, I think it was probably just that first couple of months where things were really difficult for us. So we'll move from the pandemic to the new crisis we're finding ourselves in, the cost of living crisis. How's the charity managing with that right now? And the the people, the charity help, have you noticed there's more people now struggling financially because of the, because of the crisis? I think... I think the effect of COVID and the effects of cost of living crisis are very different. Um, from the charity's point of view, COVID threw everything up in the air and we had to make a lot of significant changes um, in a way that we haven't, as a charity, particularly with the cost of living crisis, that, that hasn't greatly affected... Um, what we what we deliver in terms of services it's it's possibly had a small impact on our fundraising in terms of people having less disposable income and quite understandably where maybe they might have previously made a donation to different strengths not being able to but i wouldn't necessarily say that's had a massive impact yet um, at this point so from a charity's point of view the cost of living crisis has probably been easier to handle than covid from a stroke survivor's point of view, and I'm I, I'm very wary of generalising here because, as you know yourself, Andrew, every stroke survivor is different, and every stroke survivor is an individual with their own unique story and circumstances. But with COVID, we saw a level of resilience within our stroke survivor community, not least because. All stroke survivors have been through a life-changing experience that has, has almost certainly come without warning whatsoever. And in a sense, that's for a lot of us, that's what COVID was. Um, but for stroke survivors, you know, there is with with, with many of them, I guess, a, a built-in resilience if they've, they've been through something life-changing before and kind of just got on with things, I think, with COVID. Cost of living is a lot more difficult um, it's difficult to answer that in terms of how is it specifically affected stroke survivors because there will be stroke survivors who have significant financial worries there will be stroke survivors who um, maybe don't have financial concerns and, and and so that in a sense that's just going to be representative of, of the UK population as a whole where millions of people have financial concerns are struggling and that will be replicated within the stroke survivor community um but without without a shadow of a doubt for a number of our beneficiaries it's 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 a very difficult time i think what i would add with this though is it's it's not just about finances per se um we're not just going through a cost of living crisis at the moment. You know, it seems we're very much coming into a crisis within the NHS as well. Uh, there are particular concerns about how the NHS is going to cope this winter. Um, the NHS has massive workforce challenges at the moment. Um, there are shortfalls of stroke um, stroke physicians. I, I think the latest stats that I've seen is probably about 50% of hospitals in the country um, do not have the number of stroke consultants that they require. Um, there's also a massive shortfall of nurses as well. 
Um, so what what this means on the ground is we're seeing incidences of stroke survivors not having the follow-up meetings that they should do. Um, COVID obviously played a massive part in this in terms of, you know, being difficult to arrange appointments. But, you know, stroke survivors are not getting routine appointments and not getting access to maybe occupational therapists or rehab or speech and language therapists um, because there's not always the staff on the ground to deliver those appointments. Um, so that's a real concern that goes above and beyond the, the cost of living crisis itself. So let's get back to different strokes and the great work you do. What services do you offer to young stroke survivors? Um, so there's a range of things that, that we do. First and foremost, we have a very active um, online support group via Facebook, um, which we moderate, but we moderate it deliberately in a very light touch way. Um, and this is a fantastic way where stroke survivors and close family members of stroke survivors can engage with each other online, um, can ask each other for advice, get support from each other, um, share their successes with each other. It's a very positive group where, where people are able to celebrate post-stroke achievements. Um, and as well, if they're looking for advice on a particular area from people that have been through experiences, an individual, for example, might post someone in, something in the group saying, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm going through X, Y, Z at the moment. I'm not sure how to cope with it and get 30, 40, 50 messages back from other people in terms of both support and practical advice. So this is a fantastic way for, for stroke survivors to engage with each other. Um, I have a network of approximately 30 groups up and down the country where people are able to get together in a physical setting. Um, for peer support, for, for exercise and so forth. Um, we have three stroke survivors who are based out of our head office who are available to give support to other stroke survivors over the phone. So again, this will be practical advice, emotional support, uh, signposting is if, if, we, if required to, to other organisations. Um, some of the new things that we've developed in the past few years is we have a teen and young adult befriending service. Um, we have four fantastic volunteers who, who help operate this service. They all had a stroke in their 20s and they're available to offer one-to-one -one support to other stroke survivors, normally over the phone, um, for survivors aged 16 to 25 who really want to be able to talk to someone who had a similar experience um, at the age that they are now and to know how they, they coped with it. Um, we do more online now. We have online exercise sessions five days a week, which we run on Monday to Friday. Um, exercise levels are set at five different levels, ranging from Monday sessions, which are for people who are um, maybe have no movement or heavily restricted movement down one side, which is wholly um, seated exercise, um, through to Friday, where it's exercise for people who are close to being able-bodied. But the theory behind this is no matter what your physical condition as a stroke survivor, there should be at least one level throughout the week, which, which is appropriate for you to engage in. Um, and we run online networking as well now. So every couple of weeks, we'll we'll have a networking session, which we facilitate. And we run these really without any agenda whatsoever. We just invite people to, to come along for an hour. We'll put people in small breakout rooms, you know, maybe six to seven people in a room. 
um, and just give them an opportunity to talk about whatever issues are on their mind, um, you know, and to, and, and to see where that conversation goes. Um, so there's an awful lot that we're doing. And one of the major things which we've just started to do a lot in the last year, but we'll ramp up now because we've recruited a specific staff member to look into this, um, is issues regarding ethnicity and stroke. Um, stroke disproportionately affects Black and Asian people and affects them at a younger age as well. But that's not always been reflected amongst the beneficiaries who who we support. Um, and so we've started to look into to what we can do to both offer greater support to Black and Asian stroke survivors and increase awareness of stroke within Black and Asian communities. Um, it's quite a complicated issue with, with, with no easy solutions to this. Um, but we're determined to, um, to make sure that, um, you know, this is an area that, that's the focus for, for us in the next few years going forward. So that's another future thing you're talking about for the charity. What, what future fundraising events have you got coming up or like awareness campaigns that we can look out for? Yeah. Um, in terms of fundraising, um, there's a couple of major events we do each year. Each March, we have an event called March On, um, which is uh, people doing their own individual challenges um, of whatever's appropriate for them and, and their abilities. Um, the last couple of years, we've had probably 30 or so people undertaking individual challenges, often in their own home or maybe just walking around in their local area. Um, but we we brand this March on, and that's been very successful for us the last couple of years. Um, and then each September, we have an annual upsale um, of the um, orbit structure in the Olympic Park, um, where we will probably have 20, 25 people coming along, although we are looking at having it, making it a bigger event next year with, with, with more people attending that. Um, as a chance for people to abseil down the structure as a fundraising event. I have to say the vast majority of people that normally undertake this are, are from our community are stroke survivors themselves. And what's good about this event is it's not only an event to, to fundraise for the charity, but can be a fantastically empowering event for, for individual stroke survivors to take part in themselves. So finally, I want to end on this uh, just before we run out of time. Mm -hmm. Do you think enough has been done to help tackle young adult stroke? Um, in short, no. Um, we focus at different strokes on the life after stroke part of it. So we tend not to do much on the on the campaigning side, for example. So I don't really, I, I don't feel I could particularly comment on any, say, any preventative work that, that's taking place in this area, um, as we tend not to focus on that so much at different strokes. Um, but I would say a few things about this. Um, stroke services typically are, are not tailored towards younger people. Um, there still remains this myth that stroke is um, something that only affects the elderly. Um, and for all the time that this myth is there, you know, we, we, we're always going to be fighting against this, you know, the fact that, um, you know, services might not necessarily take into account the needs of younger people. 
I do think this is changing now, which is a positive thing, but I think the, the, the rate of change is quite slow and there's still some way to go. Um, the, the, the second thing that I'd say on this in, in, in terms of you know tackling young stroke is that a lot of our beneficiaries report to us that they will likely get a brief period of rehabilitation post-stroke, but when that rehabilitation ends, it's a little bit like falling off a cliff. It's a little bit like, well, well, what now? You know, am I supposed to just get on with things? We, we, you know, with without a support network in place, and I think this is the case. To be fair, of stroke survivors of, of any age, but one of the things we're really keen with at different strokes, and and, and no doubt other stroke support organisations would say the same as well, is. The sooner we can support people, the better. Um, it's frustrating to us when people contact us at different strokes and say things like, I had my stroke two or three years ago and I wish I'd been aware of you sooner, you know, because we'd like to be able to be there to support people, um, you know, as, as early as possible as we can post-stroke. Not least because if people are already getting support from us or the Stroke Association or another charity, before they rehab ends, then, I, then it will feel a little bit less like falling off a cliff when their rehab does end. It will obviously be difficult for them, but at least they've got some other support from the strength support organisations in place now. Um, and I think the final thing to say on this in terms of young stroke is we are still aware of too many cases of um, young stroke being misdiagnosed. Um, including from, you know, certain aspects of the medical profession, including from GPs. Um, we have sadly heard of, you know, a number of cases of people being told, you know, you can't be having a stroke, you're too young, of people maybe presenting at hospital and being accused of being drunk or being accused of having taken drugs. Um, and this is something that, you know, but we obviously we really we really want to see change because you know, as I said, this this mis misdiagnosis is is still happening, and and that's obviously what we what we want to prevent because time is so important when someone's had a stroke, um, and it's really important that when someone has a stroke that they're able to get you know the the, the acute care that they need straight away. Austin, thank you very much for giving us your time today and coming on and talking about how there is still that stigma towards young people that they can't be having strokes, they're too, they're too young. And, you know, this is something that's very important and needs to needs to be changed in the in the view of the public. So thank you very much for coming on and, and talking about it. You're welcome. Thanks, Andre. No problem. Yes.